Chapter 11. One of the many challenges of playing in a band, especially someone else's band, was having to blend in. As a keyboard player and backing singer, Ernest was in essence a backdrop, both visually and musically. He was to be heard and not seen. Just as meeting Georgia had slowed his decline, losing her again so abruptly risked a relapse. Therefore, shortly before midnight, Ernest walked in search of Esme's room. Give Georgia and Henry a lift to the station if she must, but Esme must remain on tour. He knocked again on her door. It opened. Esme didn't look like she had been asleep, but she had been crying. She put her arms around his neck, her cheek against his, and shook with further sobs. He shuffled awkwardly into the room and closed the door with his foot. I'm sorry, she said. About what? I just keep thinking about Henry. About how we left it all too late. The one thing stopping us from raising the money Henry needs is Henry himself. Have you spoken to Georgia? asked Ernest. Esme nodded. She's putting a brave face on, of course. You know I can easily stay here and carry on. I talked about that with Georgia. It's not fair on you. I mean, you hardly know us. You're not exactly... Well, um, what I mean is that you could, you know, use some money yourself. Ernest arched an eyebrow. His efforts for Henry had unexpectedly turned him into a charity case. I rub along, he said eventually. They sat in silence for a bit, no longer clamped together. Georgia felt it was too much to ask of you. Well, he said, there is another complication. The road is a strange dark place for me. I'm not too sure how long I can stay straight on my own. Esme nodded. It didn't take too much imagination to see that, what with the coke and the poker and the drink. Well, I was thinking, he said, that if Georgia and Henry took the train or drove your car back home, we could divide and conquer. You could keep the poker ticking over while I do the gigs. We could just about cover Georgia's share, almost. Esme scoffed. Well, I'm slightly up, sure, but not all that much. And I could just as easily lose money. I mean, I just think there are better ways to make money. Quite who Ernest was doing all this for had occupied his thoughts off and on. He still didn't trust himself enough to know whether he just simply fancied Georgia. Everything else, even Esme, was a kind of justification or Georgia substitute. He could see all the permutations there. He just didn't know which one was true. In fact, the closer he got to Esme and the more wrapped up he got in Henry's problems, the smaller his problems seemed. In his most honest moment, it was a toss-up between wanting to sleep with Georgia and selfishly keeping himself out of the gutter. Henry wasn't a part of it. That was just him being a man, and not an enlightened one. I don't think we have other options, he said. I need to stay on this tour no matter what, and I can't do it on my own. His hand shook, so he sat down. Esme ruffled his hair. That little boy really has got to you, she said. Not as much as his aunt, he said, but didn't smile. Let me talk to Georgia, she said. I'll tell her about the poker. She'll find out eventually anyway, and I'll say I'm going to stay with you. She can take my car, we won't need it. Just for a week or so, let you find a new routine here without us. It's Henry's last chance. He smiled. One week was a good start, and it gave him a week to work on her. He walked to the lifts, descended to the bar. He deserved a celebratory drink, a real one, just the one, to mark his achievement. 
On the first night of the tour after Georgia and Henry left, Esme took a seat in the main arena, mixed in with the masses, the paying public, rather than in the area set aside near the front for friends and hangers-on. Shortly after the lights went down, someone sat in the empty chair next to her. She glanced up instinctively and was surprised to see John. I'm relieved the little boy was okay, he said. He had to go home for further tests, but yes, he's okay. Thanks for helping me find him. John shrugged, a small gesture. They watched the first song together in silence. After the applause died down, John spoke again. What does the babysitter do after the baby has gone home? He asked. I hadn't thought that far ahead. I'm just here to pass the time. You must have seen this show once too often. Why don't we head into town for some food? Esme smiled. She felt heat rising in her cheeks. What was there to stop her? She had fulfilled her obligations on this tour. She couldn't babysit Ernest in reality, not all the time. It was time for a night off. He would be safe on stage for a few hours. She stood to accept John's suggestion. Ernest had not seen Esme in the audience. After a few songs, he was more bothered by the replacement sax player. He felt like it was George's place on the stage, not just some generic saxophonist, and the sax solos just made him jittery. He was tired, edgy, missing Esme as well as Georgia. He felt the yawning distance between himself and the audience, and felt detached from the band, feeling very isolated. He knew she preferred to blend in with the crowd and would avoid the front row. Without Henry, she had probably just taken a random seat, had probably been watching the show anonymously, taking some time out for herself. After the show, Ernest couldn't see Esme anywhere backstage. Nobody else had seen her either. The feeling reminded him a little of the night before, when the reason for her absence had been the setback of Henry's illness. He sat in silence on the tour bus back to the hotel. Esme wasn't waiting for him in the bar, and she didn't answer when he knocked on her door. Unexpectedly angry, he didn't feel like sleep. Instead, he turned to work. On his list of cooperative dealers, he called the first local name and arranged an exchange for tomorrow night. The sooner he got rid of the stuff, the sooner he could chuck the whole sham tour in and return home to see Georgia. The guy lived a few miles out of town, so Ernest arranged a meeting in a village pub midway between the two of them. He took a shower, put on a robe, grabbed a whiskey from the minibar. There wasn't enough drink in that tiny fridge to cause any trouble. He put the TV on and dozed. Ernest awoke to a knock on his door. Rubbing his eyes, he went to answer it. You're late, he said to Esme, but he was tired and not angry any more. It was just a fact. He sat down on the bed and propped himself up on a pillow. One of the management guys took me off to dinner, she said. It was nice being somewhere different for a change. Come over here, he patted the bed next to him. Let's play some poker tomorrow night. Okay. There was no show tomorrow and they were in Newcastle again the following night, so they had a rare day off without a long journey in the middle of it. Do you mind if I sit here? My name is John. Ernest's dealer contacts never gave their names. A name put him immediately on his guard. John offered his hand, but Ernest did not take it. John sat down opposite him. You want some more stuff? It was vague enough that it could mean anything. In the unlikely event, this was some kind of mistake. Not tonight. There's something more pressing. Ernest did not respond. We liked your product. It was some of the purest stuff we've seen in years. We want to tie up your supply. We'll take everything you've got, but we need a little favour. Ernest sank forwards. His mind reeled with possibilities. Why couldn't this just run smoothly like any other business? He knew it would get difficult, blurry, messed up. Small issues could lead to big ones. 
waste time, cost money. What do you want me to do? He asked. Our competitors will take a hit once we start shifting your product. We need to give them an extra push over the edge. Hit them from both sides. They're teetering already. John slid a case towards Ernest with his foot. It connected with Ernest's shin, and he glanced down briefly, resting a hand on it. What's in it? Some additional product. What's wrong with it? Nothing. It's the usual low-grade crap you can get anywhere. It's coke, but very weak. Lowest quality. If they're selling that at the same time we're shifting this, they'll lose all their customers. A month from now will be the only operation Newcastle worth anything. If I decline... You have no reason to. This is pure profit for you. Pure cash. Zero risk. It sounded easy just to agree to make the man go away. Why will this person trust me? I can't just call up a stranger and start offering drugs. John shrugged dismissively. We've put the word out, a bit of marketing for you. He'll be practically beating your door in. He'll make contact with you in a day or so. You've already put the word out. You seem pretty confident, I'll agree. There's no reason not to, said John. We know where to find you. Hotels aren't that secure a place for storing drugs. We could just acquire your product without all this messing around. But it's our big chance to put the competition out of circulation. Ernest sighed. Okay, I'll do it. But I want you to take half of the rest now and pay for it too. And you promise to take the rest as soon as I've offloaded this case. John nodded and held out his hand for Ernest to shake. He counted out a large amount of cash and slipped it under the drinks menu. Good night, I'll collect next time. It really sounded like there was nothing to lose. The next morning began with a ringing phone. It had to be the anonymous drug rival inquiring about a new supply line. Ernest realised that he sort of enjoyed being in John's team. Until now, he had been an outsider, only a mule. Now he was working on the inside, if only for a day. He was just a day away from shifting the last of the product he had brought from London, and covering Henry's medical bill. He wasn't sure yet where that would leave him personally, what he would do with his days. Ernest answered the phone. Yes, I have a supply, yes, I can meet you then. They ran through a few more details about a meeting and the caller rang off. Alone with his thoughts, Ernest was pleased at the precautions he had taken. John had already given him half the cash for his remaining stock. For a brief second, Ernest considered the angles if he sold that part of his inventory twice. The band would be leaving town tomorrow. Ernest didn't strictly need to continue with the tour, so he could easily give John the slip. But there were at least two factors against taking this course of action. Ernest believed John's threats, that he could find him pretty easily. But more than that, he also believed the competition did not have the same purchasing power. He knew enough of John to believe that he did supply most of the cocaine in and around Newcastle. It was by far the easiest and therefore the safest and logical course of action to stick exactly to John's plan. The final reason he would play along was that he was grateful to not have to compute the angles and make the running this time. On top of battling his urge to drink and unravel, it was just too much. The hardest part of this final transaction was what to do about Esme. It would be much harder to give her the slip now that George and Henry had departed. Should he take her with him? There may just be fewer questions that way and sooner or later he would need to explain to George where all this money had come from. The explanation, whatever angle he went with, would be a lot easier coming from Esme. She would know how to present things, how to fend off questions. It seemed that Esme had changed or regressed, and she was no longer the straightforward career mum she had been a few weeks previously. She could take the news better than Georgia, and understand the intricacies to avoid, emphasising the money 
rather than the means of its survival. He had an idea how to try out his arguments. The first thing he had to do was order breakfast in the room and then wake Esme up. Esme stumbled into the room, rubbing her eyes and fastening a robe around her. Special occasion, she said. Just as much as Ernest felt unburdened by the departure of Georgia, he felt the need not to show any sign of celebration either. The circumstances were dark, and only he knew that they were just hours away from being able to fund the life-saving operation for Henry. Not really, I just wanted to ask a favour. Oh? Esme settled herself on a chair and addressed the lid of a boiled egg with a blunt knife. I've been asked to deliver a package for a friend to make some more money. Great. It's a couple of blocks of cocaine. Esme stopped sawing at the egg. Why take the risk? It's quite a bit of money. She shrugged. Well, every little helps, but there must be some risk involved or they wouldn't have asked you. That's why I'd like you to come along, to blend into the background and keep an eye out for trouble. At last, Esme put the knife down. She sat back in her chair and folded her arms. It's starting to sound dodgy. If it was that safe and easy, you could have just gone by yourself. They sparred a little more. It's just a feeling I have, that's all, he said finally. I don't want to hide from you. A few more of these and I'll have enough money aside with your card earnings to pay for Henry's operation. That was his strongest move. Esme blew her cheeks out. It sounds too good to be true. Things were going better than he expected. He put just a little more truth into it. It's not the first time I've done it. It's been my own side project for Henry. It's getting more urgent now. So you need to take a risk? Why involve me now if you're so close to the end? Well, it's just the two of us now. It seemed the right time. Esme smiled a little. And you're not sure how George will react, so you're practising on me first. Ernest swallowed. Not just that, but a bit, yes. Let me eat breakfast and I'll think about it. He watched her eat in silence, reluctant to break her conversation in case he incriminated himself or annoyed her, and he didn't want to risk her deciding against him. Okay, I'm in, she said. What do you want from me? Great, we leave at noon. And that was it. Ernest sat on a bar stool in the pub at the agreed time. Esme had arrived half an hour earlier and seated herself in the corner with a glass of wine and a clear view of the entrance and the bar itself. Two minutes later, a man took the stool next to Ernest, even though there were plenty of others. Can I buy you a drink? he asked abruptly. A little too early for me, Ernest lied. Then I'll get some fresh air. The man left again. Ernest stood and followed. Outside in the car park, which Ernest and Desmond had reached in separate taxis, Ernest caught up with the man. He walked with a slight waywardness, not a limp, but a stiff knee or ankle. Here's my car, said the man. Jump in for a minute. Ernest walked around to the passenger door and sat down. He sat on a hand to stop it from trembling. You have the product, asked the man. Ernest nodded and patted his jacket. We haven't heard of anything this pure for years, said the man. I'd like to make you an improved offer. Oh? I'll take the two blocks we talked about earlier, but we'd like to make a long-term commitment. We could be your sole agent in the northeast. Any time your buddies in the south have another batch to offload, we'd like first refusal. Ernest thought for a second. I'll pass on your offer for their consideration. The man paused. Seemingly satisfied, he nodded. He pulled an envelope of cash out of the glove box, leaving it open. Put the blocks in there, he said. Ernest did as he was asked. Pleasure, he said, opening the door. He walked slowly back to the bar. He heard the man start his engine and drive away. As Ernest returned to the bar, he winked at Esme. All done in time to buy her lunch. 
After lunch, Esme and Ernest returned to the hotel by taxi. Ernest phoned John to confirm the blocks of cocaine had been delivered as planned, and John confirmed he would come over in two hours once his people had confirmed that the drugs had been delivered to the other side. Ernest waited alone at the bar for John. He was relieved this would be the last such meeting. Too many strange meetings in random pubs, hotels and bars for comfort. It was also his last night on the blasted tour. He was looking forward to London and leaving all the trials and temptations of the road behind him. When John arrived, Ernest beckoned him over. John shook Ernest's hand. Good work, he said, for an amateur. Amateurs are more likely to keep their word, Ernest replied. That's exactly what I told my colleagues. Here's your fee. They exchanged the money for the cocaine and said good night. Being so heavy with cash, Ernest decided that he would have room service for dinner and sleep early. He was taking no chances. They would rise early tomorrow for their train ride to London. Ernest didn't need an alarm the next morning. The bedside phone rang shortly after six o'clock. Ernest grunted into the receiver. Be outside your hotel in ten minutes, said John. What? Why? I'll tell you when I see you. Pack your things, every last trace of your kit, every single atom, and meet me outside. Don't be late, not by a second. John sounded breathless, edgy, unrested. He had already hung up. Get up, Ernest barked. We need to pack. Why? asked Esme. Some kind of trouble. Sounds like my business partner has a problem. He'll be here in ten minutes. First of all, Ernest quickly removed his cash from the bottom of the wardrobe and placed it carefully into his holdall. Esme raised an eyebrow. It doesn't look much, does it? Five thousand notes or so. Not when it's neatly bundled up. The difference between life and death. Only if we can get it to London, he replied darkly. After that, they rushed around the room, circling each other in opposite directions, grabbing knick-knacks and stuffing them into bags and pockets. Ernest was increasingly concerned about John's manner on the phone. He asked Esme to stand by the door as he quickly checked the bathroom and then the bedroom for every last brush, lipstick and earring. Satisfied the room was empty, they marched for the stairs and took them two at a time. As they barreled out of the front door and down the stairs, a revving car engine broke the dawn's silence. John pulled up in front of them. He threw a door open. Ernest pushed Esme into the car, jumping in after her and closing the door in a single movement. Ernest and Esme, good morning, uttered John breathlessly and screeched off. Ignoring the fact that John knew Esme's name, Ernest asked, what happened? You need to leave town immediately. I'm going to put you onto a fast train south. Why? John drove fast but under control. There were no more screeching tyres or grinding gears. Accelerate hard, then brake hard. Accelerate, brake. It was sickening, but quick. The gist is that someone on my side duped us, said John. The package you delivered to our rivals was spiked with some kind of poison. And the guys are out looking for you. They're on the way to the hotel. If they caught you, they would make you talk about me, and so on, along the chain. I'm here on my own account. They asked me to forget about you, suggested that I run for it but there's less chance they'll find me if they can't get to you. I'm not running away. This is my town. Amateurs may keep their word, but these guys will do unspeakable things to make you tell them things. They had been minutes away from capture. The money would certainly have been confiscated. Their luck had run out. Well, now I know who you really are, I'm not surprised, said Esme and folded her arms tightly. This sounded like a cockeyed plan to me from the start. I'm sorry, Esme, I just needed to be sure about Ernest. An insurance policy, that's all. Don't stay on any train longer than half an hour. 
not until you're beyond Leeds. The train will move faster than a car and faster than they can organise reinforcements. Get off, walk around for a bit, then jump on the next train, repeat, then get the fast train from Leeds to London and don't look back. John pulled up outside the station. Buy a ticket from the machine, not from a person, and use cash. Don't use your cards for at least a week. And John had gone once again, driving off before they had even reached the door to the train station.